does God give a second chance to accept Christ for salvation after we die? Well, that's a question that a friend of mine in New Hampshire sent, so let's talk about that on Wisdom 828, where we're dedicated to stamping out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. Hi, I'm Bob Buchanan. Who are you? Who are so wise? It's a question as old as the church, really. Does God give a second chance to be saved after death? Uh, the argument is one that uh, a person's soul uh, leaves his or her body and presumably comes before the Lord and seeing the greatness of heaven, who would reject an offer to be saved? Well, it's a logical question, but is it the right question? Now, arguments for what is more accurately known as post-mortem salvation or a second chance at salvation go all the way back to the early church fathers of the second, third, and fourth centuries. Even today, a few pastors and theologians and authors have made that very case. Uh, but, they're, but they're not the only ones. The doctrine is also taught among the Mormon and Jehovah's Witnesses organizations. Those who argue for a second chance after death do so on basically two foundations. First, a few New Testament scriptures, especially from Peter's letter referring to Jesus' descent into hell to preach to the dead about his victory over the grave, and the second, on the generous and pursuing love of God. That argument says that if God is, is for example, like the woman who searched desperately for a lost coin, or the shepherd who left the 99 sheep for the single one that was lost, or an earnest father looking out every day for his wayward son, then surely God would go to extraordinary lengths to save a person. So even after death, his love and mercy would extend beyond the grave to offer repentance and salvation, enabling a wicked person to repent and come to faith in Christ. Now, we should never doubt the extensiveness of the love of God. Paul wrote that he wanted all Christians to be rooted and grounded in God's love so that we may have uh, strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, uh, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. As John Bunyan said in his book, All Loves Excelling, God has a long arm and he can reach a great way further than we can conceive that he can. There is a reach to God's love that goes beyond our comprehension, but that's not the same thing as going beyond the grave. While we should not doubt that God, whose grace reaches as far as the curse is found, as the Christmas hymn says, it's also a holy and just grace. He cannot deny himself or diminish any of his attributes to exalt another. Abraham understood this when he interceded for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He asked God to spare those cities for the sake of the righteous people who lived there. Uh, the basis of Abraham's plea was this. He said to God, suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in that city. You, you won't sweep away all of them. Uh, uh, surely you, you wouldn't do such a thing, uh, destroying the righteous along with the wicked why you, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Surely the judge of all the earth would do what's right. Well, to know how extensive God's love is can be seen in the cross of Christ. 
The cross tells the story of God's extensive love and mercy. And at the same time, it affirms the righteousness and justice of God. Sin is never swept under any cosmic carpet. Sin always must be paid for with a just penalty. And those who put their trust in Christ as the payment for their sin find the love and mercy of God's forgiveness. But those who reject that cross have neither the love of God nor the mercy that forgives their sin. Having rejected God's sin bearer for them, they then must bear the penalty of their own sin. Now, I, I wrote to my friend and I gave him seven reasons why I think that God doesn't offer a second chance at salvation after death. So if you're taking notes, let's just go one by one. First of all, God has set an urgent boundary around the importance in this life of obeying the gospel to be saved. Hebrews 9.27 says it. Everyone must die once, and after that, the judgment of God. Secondly, the main thing about the life given to us by God is that we are to know what's really important. Jesus told us what it is. What profit is there to anyone who would gain the whole world and lose his soul? Now, just imagine, what if you were able to gain the wealth of the whole world? I looked it up right now. That number stands at about $360.6 trillion. And Jesus says that, your soul is worth more than $360 trillion. If your soul is worth so much, are you doing anything that guarantees its eternal safety? Only Christ guarantees the safety of a soul. As they say, you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse on the way to the cemetery. Third, let's add a little bit of urgency to this main thing of life. Uh, we learn important insights from a story Jesus told about a rich man and a poor man in Luke 16. Our souls are immortal. They live, they, they live on forever. And we will live in the presence of Christ, enjoying all of the riches of his kingdom or in eternal torments. And in that story, a rich man and a poor man uh, who, who had to beg for his daily needs, both of them die on the same night. A poor man is taken to heaven while the rich man is taken to Hades. That's the Greek word for hell. The rich man, tormented by the flames of hell, asks Abraham to send Lazarus, the poor man, over to his side of eternity with just a drop of water to cool his tongue. Now, two things stand out in Abraham's reply to the nature of heaven and hell and the nature of those who go there. The first is that there is this impossibly wide and unpassable chasm between the two places. Once you're in one of them, you cannot cross over to the other one. We might think of a wide chasm like the Grand Canyon separating the two places of eternity. The second thing to notice, and this is even more insightful, the rich man asked only two things, and both of them were denied. One was for water to relieve his pain, and the other was to send Lazarus to his brothers to warn them about hell and how to avoid that place. Both of them were denied. Now, if a second chance were available after death, why in the world didn't the rich man ask for that? He was consciously aware of his place in eternity. And the best he could hope for was that his brothers might not join him. But Abraham's answer is as relevant today as then. Your brothers have Moses and the prophets to warn them. Your brothers should listen to what they say. In other words, read what the Bible says. It's interesting that the rich man complains that the Bible really isn't enough. Uh, but he believes that if someone would just rise from the grave, then, you know, they would turn away from their sins. Jesus' answer is simple. 
If they won't listen to the Bible, they won't be convinced even if someone were to rise from the grave. And the testimony of God's word is that someone has risen from the grave. And in doing so, he's defeated death. Jesus' resurrection is proof that the Bible is true. And the Bible affirms Jesus' victory in his resurrection. Now, number four is none of this denies such things as deathbed con uh, conversions. Uh, the story of the two thieves crucified with Jesus proves that point. Both criminals began their death sentence by mocking Jesus while he, they were crucified next to him. But at some point during that three hours of agony, in a secret working of uh, God in the heart of one of the thieves, the Spirit softened his heart and revealed to him who was hanging next to him. He was the Savior of the world. He was the Savior that man needed. And that man repented of his rejection of God's sacrifice. We know this because he asked Jesus to remember him when Jesus came into his kingdom. And Jesus answered by promising that on that very day, that repentant thief would be with Jesus in paradise. You can read about that in Matthew 27 and Luke 23. Now notice that the other thief who mocked Jesus, he never asked for salvation. Which leads us to the fifth thing, and that's the most sobering implication that comes from the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and it's this. People enter the eternity uh, in the condition in which they lived, uh, lived their lives, rejecting God or loving God. Again, we can see from the story that people who reject Christ enter into their eternity in that same condition of rebellion as they lived. We can assume from Scripture that if any were given the chance to repent, they simply would not take that opportunity. Now, number six says this. How many chances do you think God actually gives a person in life? Did you know that every day, all day long, God is speaking to all the people of the world about his power and his majesty? Romans 1 says that God is revealing the knowledge of his glory and human accountability to him, and sadly, human rejection of that knowledge. Because of the condition of sin, all people reject the knowledge of God. Because people want to live their own lives in their own way, apart from the uh, wisdom of God, regardless of the harm that is caused by their sin. However, this knowledge, though largely ignored, revealed from heaven and in nature, leaves us without excuse for our rejection of God. In other words, no one will ever be able to say to God, I just didn't know. As they say, ignorance of the law is no excuse. And number seven, and I've left this one uh, to the last because I think it's most important, and that's this. Why would God save anyone? This is a question that's rarely asked, and yet it goes right to the heart of the nature of God's mercy. Why do we think that God is obligated to save anybody? According to 2 Peter 3, it's true that God is not willing that anyone should perish in eternal condemnation, but we must always remember that we are creatures of the Creator and we have no claim on God to presume anything from Him. To be perfectly blunt, in our sinful state, we deserve the punishment of Jesus on the cross, followed by eternal separation from God. There is nothing we can give to him that would compel him to save us. God saves freely and exclusively apart, of, uh, apart from anything in us. We see this freedom of God to save 
exemplified in Deuteronomy 7. That passage explains why Israel had been treated so well by God. And it says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was not because, the, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Our condition before God can't be remedied by ourselves or anything that we can do to please him. Only the love of God rescues anyone from the awful condition that we find ourselves in. So what is the basis of salvation? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 gives us the answer. By grace alone, through faith, Christ alone. The stunning thing about salvation is that God saves according to his grace, not according to our works. Well, that's all the time that we have for now. So thanks for joining me and thanks to Steve Dion for being a great collaborator on Wisdom 828, where we are dedicated to stamping out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. You be of good cheer.